Welcome to another episode of This Engineering Life, the undergraduate series. I am Becky Simmons, an associate professor of the practice in mechanical engineering and material science at Duke University. I'm joined with Raina, Richard, Sydney, and Priya, all undergraduate engineering students also at Duke University. In this episode, we're talking about engineering Greek life and SLGs. We're glad to have you listen. Thank you for joining us. So hello everybody, this is Raina, and I'm here today with a special guest, Dr. G. I'm sure many of our listeners know him from 103 or Mechatronics. He teaches a lot of great classes here. But he's here today to talk a little bit about his perspective on SLG and Greek life in Duke. So hi, Dr. G, how are you? Thank you for being here. Good, thanks for having me. Yeah, so can you first tell us a little bit about what exactly your involvement is in Duke Greek life and SLGs? Sure, so I am the faculty advisor for Kaisai, which is one of the uh, social fraternities. Uh, we are no longer affiliated with the university, so you know, during the last couple years, several fraternities have changed that affiliation. So we still exist in Durham and at Duke for Duke students, but we're just not part of the official Duke IFC. I also serve on our national executive council so I'm one of nine uh, volunteer elected alumni members for that. Wow, awesome. So you're very involved in all aspects of Duke, that is. Okay, great. So yeah, I know specifically with Greek Life, I think at this point all of our fraternity organizations are disaffiliated with Duke. Correct me if I'm wrong. But do you have any opinion on what implications that has for these organizations? Yeah, so I think for the IFC that Psyupsilon is still affiliated, um, especially they have housing for this last year. Okay. Um, So there were four groups that originally stayed, and I do believe that the other three have since disaffiliated, but I Mm -hmm. think that Psyupsilon is is affiliated. And also, there are uh, multi-Greek and national Panhellenic fraternities that are also affiliated. Um, So just to be clear about that, it's mainly the IFC. Yeah, thank you for clearing that up. Um, And then also for for sororities, I believe all of Panhellenic has disaffiliated, Um, but I do think that there are multi-Greek and national Panhellenic that that are still affiliated. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the changes that it's made, you know, certainly not having a formal relationship with the university does mean that there are certain things that used to happen that don't. So there were a lot of trainings that the uh, Office of former Office of Greek Life that then became um, Student Leadership and Involvement would hold. And and those are still held for those groups that um, are affiliated and and are certainly important things that um, our students really need to know when they're talking about the kinds of opportunities they have to work with their fellow students Mm -hmm. and just how to appropriately hold recruitment and how to appropriately hold ritual and tradition events. And, you know, there there are unfortunately lots of different ways that things can go wrong. And so I know that the, the, the members of that office of student leadership really want to support students in all the ways that they can to make sure it's done right. Certainly the national offices of all the fraternities and sororities want to make sure that their uh, students are you know, conveying the best of what the traditions are for their fraternities and sororities. It's just harder without any kind of official relationship. Um, but for a lot of us, you know, we, we just could no longer go along with the idea that we needed to wait so long before we could even really start recruiting members. And so the major sticking point was the idea that for two of the four chapters on campus, that they would not be allowed to really recruit until the third semester. And so that's the primary reason I would say that I've heard that most of the groups have disaffiliated. Certainly the lack of a housing space didn't help. Um, 
and you know, trying to figure out how it is that you can really get a vertically integrated community without a common place to live is difficult. Um, you know, Quadex is still going to be struggling with that difficulty from the standpoint that you live in your freshman dorm and then you come over to West and you live somewhere on the main quad, but then after that you might be, you know, anywhere and th there's no vertically connected part of that. So I think that as Quadex matures, figuring out how those continuing relationships across classes is going to be one of the things that they, they're definitely going to work on. Right, definitely. Yeah, we actually did recently an episode about QuadX, um, maybe last semester, because it seems to be unpopular with a lot of the undergrad students, which I can definitely understand, and especially for its implications on things like Greek life and SLGs. But I do think there's a lot of merit to that program, so if anyone is feeling the other way, maybe check out that episode. Um, but it definitely is interesting. I know that there's a lot of SLGs that are like just are in the middle of their rush or are just rushing now, even though Duke told them like maybe they couldn't do so. So yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how things evolve with QuadX. Yeah, the fall was definitely bumpy from the standpoint mm -hmm. that there were groups that, that very much felt that they were allowed to have events and even got those events approved by right. some part of the administration and then were told you know, with not much time that, in fact, those were not approved and, and kind of had to rework what those were. Um, I have not been working with selective living groups all that much to know what the plans are. I know that some are, are truly looking at becoming LLCs. Right. Um, others are not planning on having a living component. And so I think that they are having to ask the question, you know, who are we if we are not a selective living group mm -hmm. um, as a group of people? For fraternities and sororities, I think because of the, the national and sometimes international connections, that that part just happens. Uh, for for Kaisai at Duke, we didn't have housing for quite a bit of the beginning. And so there there existed a time when you know, Kaisai as a fraternity was not a residential fraternity. And it worked. You know, people were able to make it work. They were still able to get together, have events, you know, host people, do all the kinds of things that groups do. And obviously, that's still the mode that we're currently in for you know all but one of the IFCs and for National Panhellenic. I know Panhellenic has been doing their rush and all their recruitment and things like that. I think last year they kind of suffered from some of the, the complications of not having the administrative support. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there's the lessons learned there that they ended up implementing for this year. So you know, all those things will will definitely evolve. Yeah, absolutely. I know sororities just went through their rush very in the last couple of weeks. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but one of the new nationals or from Panhell, one of the mandates that they got is they're increasing their class size, um, which is great because we get more people involved in Greek life. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. But then not having spaces on Duke since the sororities are disaffiliated is hard when you have now a bigger class size, more people in the organization, which is great. But it's harder to get to know those people right. sometimes when you don't have necessarily one common space that you can all be. Because um, I creates about like 100 to 150 girls all in one space. It's kind of hard to do that if you don't have a living space. Well, that was the complication even with the living space. So mm -hmm. so when Panhellenic finally, you know, really made the strong demand to the university about getting housing for the sororities, um, I, 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 and if I'm misremembering this, yeah, I yeah. hopefully I'm not misrepresenting it, but there was a really strong demand to make sure that the, the housing was all very similar. Yes. Um, that there wouldn't suddenly be a choice to join a particular sorority because mm -hmm. of what was seen as being better housing. And, you know, the response was the only possible place that we can put at the time these nine groups would be on Central. 
Oh, that, interesting. That would be the only way to make it you oh. know, equitable. And okay. so all the sororities uh, went to Central. When Gamma Phi Beta came in, there was no more space on Central to place them. So they went into Eden's 3A. Uh, okay. but, but there was that sense of, of wanting that. But then the problem that came along with it is that sororities are traditionally quite a bit larger than fraternities. Right. I mean, we had you know, nine and then 10 Panhellenic. We had, I think at one point, 18 IFC fraternities. Mm-hmm. And, and those groups were generally in the 50s or 60s versus 120s, 150s. Right. <laughs> So the housing was not large enough even for all of the sophomore women to live together, much less the entire chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So it was almost like without housing, at least everybody was in the same situation of having to figure out how do we form community without this location. And then when there was housing, it was like we for you 32, you're in this one same space, you have this commons room. But then what does that mean for the other 120 women in mm-hmm. terms of how to really you know, form a community? So now it's kind of gone, again, as you said, back the other way, where I'm sure it's hard to even figure out where to have a chapter meeting with 150 people if it's got to be off campus. Right. Um, and then just to figure out those ways that you can end up having community. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's very interesting. It's. I feel like when I came into Duke, because I'm a junior now, so my freshman year, I feel like Greek life was already, it was making its way out. A lot of them were already out or like basically out the door disaffiliated from Duke but you got your undergrad degree from Duke so can you tell us a little bit about what the culture around Greek life was back then and how it's kind of evolved to now? Sure so my first year was uh, well before when we had an all first year East campus so I actually lived in Trent Um, the the joke I have whenever I'm on any university committees is that it's interesting for me to talk about housing and residence life because my first year dorm is no longer a dorm and the place that I live between sophomore and senior years is no longer a campus um, because all of central campus is now basically parking lot and facilities so my my apartment sadly is gone Um, but certainly you know first and second year when there were fraternities on east and on west selective living groups so brownstone was originally named brown because it was in brown dorm oh i didn't even know that when they came to west obviously it didn't make any sense to just, just be called brown so I, you know, I would say that there were quite a few groups. There's, there's always been the sense of you know, fraternities and sororities owning social life. And I, I think the degree to which that's true is because fraternities and sororities, and to a degree selective living groups, have a common budget. So there's certainly money that they have available to them outside of what the university controls that makes it easier for them to, to throw events. Um, they, they have a much shorter lead time so if, if you want to get something approved by the university, there's quite a bit of time involved before that money can be made available. And in a college setting, when everything comes in 15-week chunks, it, that can be difficult to work around. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was an undergraduate that there were some policies that started coming into play to the point where I think it was when I was in grad school that if you had, I think, invitations or anything else like that, it had to be registered. And so I'd asked mm-hmm. some folks at the time, so you're saying if I drop a note from my central campus apartment to the people next door and say, do y'all want to come over for dinner? And if, if I serve a bottle of wine, even though all of us are over 21, that I have to register that four-person event? And I was told yes, that that, that required really? registration. Oh so my goodness. It, it, it swung back the other way more yeah. now, because I think there's there's a bit of reasonableness in terms of why, why do we want students to register things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a degree of which you know, not to be too patronizing, but the, the idea that especially for fraternities and sororities, there are people in their late teens or early 20s that are controlling budgets that, you know, have lots of zeros after them. Absolutely. And that 
probably would be for the best for there to be some form of oversight on that's that. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> but it still kills a certain degree of spontaneity mm-hmm. uh, that I think that, that people are looking for. So I know with the Quadex discussions that there were certainly conversations about how do we make it easier for the leadership and the membership of a quad to be able to, to host events, to, to formulate them, to fund them. Certainly there's been a change in the alcohol policy mm-hmm. in terms of the, the possibility of um, you know, serving beverages in a responsible manner, actually in the, in the sections and whatnot. And that's just going to evolve. I mean, I think what's happening now is there, there's a void of vertically integrated leadership with externally generated budgets. So, you know, if you look at the groups that are gone, it was people that would generally live in that space for between one and three years in the exact same dorm. Mm -hmm. And then it was folks that that would have this truly vested interest in passing on the best practices for their organization. I don't know if the quad identities will will have that. There's certainly hope that there is. And there's, there's been a lot of work in putting some branding around the quads that are similar to what happens with selective living groups and fraternities. So the notion of the arches, as an example, mm-hmm. right? So each each fraternity and sorority and selective group had their symbols and their sayings and their mottos. And so, you know, I think that the, the Quadex model is looking at those as to how do we build similar kinds of community with those things. But, you know, certainly, I mean, there have been groups that have come and gone from, from our campus. There, there are some, some old selective living groups that were sort of hilariously named that no longer exist. So there was one called Bog, which was a bunch of guys. Um, there's one called Fubar, which I'll let people look that one up. Okay. Um, so, there, you know, those have kind of evolved and devolved over time. So it is, it is different. I mean, I think, I think that what college students are looking for and expecting is different from what it was in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Certainly, I think Duke has gained much more of a national and international reputation. And so the students that are applying here have different sets of expectations, especially on the academic side, um, but also socially. I mean, I think that the people that come to Duke, some of the discontent that I've seen is just whenever something changes, there's always going to be you know discontent about the change. And so I've read some of the Chronicle articles where they've interviewed some students who basically said, the Duke that I'm at is not the Duke that I applied to. I don't think it's so radically different. I mean, you know, obviously from my perspective as a fraternity advisor, that aspect of life has changed by quite a bit. Um, in terms of just generally, you know, what, what the Duke life is, there are different things that are in place that are really trying to make sure that people have the best possible opportunities they can. Quadex does have certain restrictions about who you can live with and where you might live later. And, you know, as you might imagine, any student that's told no, regardless of what they're being told no about, is going to rebel against the no. That happened when Duke decided to make it so that first years couldn't choose roommates. Mm -hmm. And that was a, you know, major controversy. I mean, it even happened when there was a first year East. That was not a completely accepted proposal. And now I feel like it's a very popular, um, like people like that opinion. Yeah. And President Cohane, you know, I mean, you, you, regardless of whether you agreed with her, I always felt like you at least knew exactly why she was doing something. And you always felt like it came from a, from an extraordinarily thoughtful perspective. Mm -hmm. And so when that came along, it was just such a major paradigm shift for the, I mean, imagine that all the upper class students are going to have to move off east and that we're going to concentrate all of the first year students on east. Yeah. Um, and then the dining hall wasn't ready. So the first you know, little bit of it, they actually had to do shifts at the marketplace in the tents that were outside of it oh, in order wow. to get, get their meals. So, um, you know, it, it took work to get that. But I, yeah. I think now, you know, even with the Quadex conversation, there were there were some comments about, is there anything that's off the table? Is there anything we really can't 
discuss? And the answer was generally no, but we really don't see there being a chance that the all first year East is going to change, hmm. right? So I think if someone had really come up with an idea that changed that, that, that was more valuable than what we have now, it would have been looked at. But I, I think generally people look at that as, a, as an extraordinarily successful program for, uh, I mean, for me, I lived on North Campus, which was all first years. And, you know, I know for myself, I felt much more comfortable going to my dorm and being surrounded by folks who were as clueless as I was. Right. <laughs> um, whereas if I had lived on, in Edens as a first year student, mm-hmm. I, I would have felt surrounded by all these people who know what's going on and continuously getting lost in the labyrinth of Edens. <laughs> and it just, it, it, it just makes a lot more sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. You talk about the kind of pendulum swinging, that kind of metaphor, and I really like that because I feel like that is true. I feel like we shift from one extreme to another, and I feel like that's applicable to a lot of aspects of life. But I also like the call to the East Campus because at that point, I'm sure it was, it was very unpopular, as you were saying, but it could be the same with Quad X, and I think that kind of is exciting for these people going through it at this time. I know they may not be thrilled to be the kind of guinea pigs for this program, but it, yeah, I think it could have a lot of merit for them, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves for them. Yeah, I mean, the fun part about college is invariably once someone graduates, there will also be there will always be that new thing mm-hmm. that they're like, oh, you couldn't have this when I was. I mean, it was when the Broadhead Center opened, right? There were oh. people who were like, oh, you know, finally, you know, now that I'm graduated, there's actually <laughs> going to be the craft house or whatever right. else like that. And uh, that's just the nature of college is that it's going to consistently be changing. There's always going to be new programs in place. They're, you know, for Pratt. I mean, the, the room that we are in right now and the building that we are in right, right. now. Yeah, you know, this building. This, we're this in Wilkinson right now. This Wilkinson. building is brand probably new. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, you know, when alumni come back and they see what's here now, there's that, oh, I missed out on, on that. But mm-hmm. that's just the nature of, of college. And the, the great thing for Duke is that Duke is always willing to thoroughly investigate what it really perceives to be the next best thing that it can do and then go for that. And there's there's more experimentation at Duke than there are at some other places with maybe a little bit more historical inertia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly curricular changes, residence life changes. The Quadex is really kind of the first very comprehensive attempt at, at changing. And I think a lot of the previous attempts suffered from the fact that there were some little piecemeal parts and it really was going to take something at the full scale just to see, you know, how this ends up going. And it'll take time. And you're exactly right. I think for the students that are in it, there might be the sense of, oh, oh, good. You know, I'm in the Petri dish for now. But that, unfortunately, that, that is just the reality of what happens when things change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I think this was a very interesting conversation. Do you have any advice you want to leave students with who maybe are feeling anxious about the change or maybe want to get involved into Greek life or SLGs or just anything you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, so I think from the Quadex side, you know, understanding that the, 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 the heart of it is really trying to figure out how to build the connections that are going to last. Mm-hmm. So the, the concern always was that if, if students felt as if they needed to join a fraternity or sorority or SLG to get, you know, quote unquote, good housing or to have the best chance to live with their friends, you know, when, when block sizes were reduced, I think there were a lot of larger friend groups that suddenly felt like the only opportunity they had to stay together was to end up applying a place where then they could be guaranteed that if there were 12 of them, they could live together. But then the problem is not all 12 would invariably get in. And so there would be these unbelievable stressors of, you know, if you're the odd person out and 10 of your 12 friends are now living together in a space that, that feels very closed off to you, and then you and one other are just sort of this, you know, this satellite group that are elsewhere. So I absolutely understand the notion of trying to reduce 
that aspect of um, why you would join a group, that it, it really should be more than just for just where the house is. And so I think what the fraternities and sororities and selective groups are seeing now is they do have to present something that is more valuable than merely real estate mm-hmm. um, to make it work. I mean, I'm, I'm, I clearly believe in it. You know, I, I would not serve on the executive council if I didn't. I would not continue to advise if I didn't. I, I think it's just a matter of there are, there are lots of different opportunities for community at Duke. And, you know, they're certainly not all just in Greek life or, or selective groups. There are so many different clubs, interest groups, organizations, performance teams, you know, engineering team. There's just a lot of different ways that people can connect. And frankly, there's too many from the standpoint that if people start really looking at all of them, they will get completely overwhelmed by, right. by what's possible. Um, and so, but really kind of figuring out, you know, who do I want to spend the extra 10 hours a week with that I might be able to have. You know, our, our fraternity, whenever we have a meeting at the beginning, there's a, we read the preamble to our constitution and it starts with a quote, a few forsake the throng and seek retirement for its proper use. And the idea is that there just need to be some times when you, you get away from the daily business of academia and just go take a walk in the gardens or, you know, go do wee bowling or, you know, whatever it is that ends up making you have joy in that moment in time. And, you know, with, with the correct time management, as, as much as, you know, as a faculty member, I will occasionally harp on the idea that I need people to spend more time on my class than they're spending. I don't want all their time. And I, I don't want them to only be thinking about, you know, my class. I really want them to form those, those relationships. So finding those opportunities, I would say being a really strong agent for yourself in those. So if you are looking at a group and you feel that that group is not treating you particularly well, that you should not join that group. It's amazing to see the cases of hazing that happen across the country and the notion that, you know, there are extremely talented, intellectual, just great people that feel as if they should take on the obligation of being treated like garbage in order to fit in with an organization. And what I would love to convey is the idea that that is not how it needs to be, that you should be treated with respect, you should be asked to learn about the organization, like that is not something that should be overly onerous because if you if you join a group, when you join Duke and you put the name on the shirt, you need to understand that not everybody is going to love you for that. I mean, I've gone through airports and been called names just because I had, you know, something Duke on. Yeah, I'm from Maryland, um, so okay, yeah. we, we understand, yeah. <laughs> you may have had batteries thrown yeah. um, But it's exactly that with any of the groups, right? And, you know, you should know Duke's history. And so I think that, that part of the quadex that I've been asking people to look at a little bit further is we've amplified these names so that the quad names mean more than the dorm names used to used mm-hmm. to mean and sort of things. And I really think we need to do a deep dive on who those people are. Yeah. Um, and, and in some ways, there there's some people who may be listening to this know my opinion on those things. Um, there, there are some of those names that it'd be fine if they changed. Um, and the universities figured that out, right? So there are a couple buildings that, that the names have been removed because yes. they just yes. need to be. But, yeah, I mean, the main thing is, is just that. The, the, the degree of respect a person, I hope, has for themselves, that if, if any kind of that hazing comes into play for any of those organizations, and so, you know, that's the main thing I would say is that, that there are a lot of opportunities out there inside and outside of selective groups in Greek life and that whatever those opportunities are, that, you know, if that group is not treating you as the glorious person that you are, find another group. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. I think that's very well said and I think that's great advice. So thank you so much for being back on the podcast. We'd love to have you. Um, sure thing. Yeah. Thanks for the invite.
My name is Priya. I'm here with Emma, who I know from Taekwondo, and she's going to talk a little bit about the SLG slash non-Greek affiliated frat <laughs> that she's part of the leadership team. Yeah, I always get a little confused about that part. Can you go ahead and tell us about your frat and your role in it? Yeah, so we actually do not currently have SLG status. We haven't been a living group for a for kind of recent memory. What makes it a frat is that it does, we do report to a national chapter. It is an international organization. The population of APO in the Philippines is actually comparable to the population in the United States, which I think is fun and unexpected. And what's the name of the frat again? Alpha Phi Omega. Okay. So we do have like kind of like dues to a national chapter, but we also get resources from them. And then obviously the letters. But in terms of like a relationship to kind of what you think of as Greek life, we're pretty separate from that. And you might think of us more like a professional fraternity than more of a social fraternity. What is your uh, leadership position? My position title is Pledge Master, which functionally makes me head of recruitment and also more or less the president role for the incoming members. So I run my own meetings. I'm a big voice in the exec meetings, but there is a president above me who runs events and makes decisions for the group as a whole. And uh, how long have you been part of it? And what's the uh, rush process look like? I joined my sophomore fall. We are non-selective. Our only requirement to join is that you tell us that you want to. We ask about two weeks after recruitment starts, about three weeks after the semester starts, that you commit to joining for the rest of the semester. But we don't make any cuts as long as people tell us that that is their intention. So pledge requirements include a certain amount of social hours, a certain amount of service hours, because service is the core of the group, and a certain amount of meetings attended. And so even though you're non-selective, do you still have a certain season or time period that you're focused on recruiting, especially since you're um, rush, rush master, rush chair? Pledge master. Pledge master. Yeah, we only focus on recruiting for the first two or three weeks of a semester. And then we push our resources towards, you know, doing that service that we committed to do, doing our traditions, doing our weekly events and whatnot. We don't accept new members in the middle of a semester, but we do pledge every semester. We do recruit every semester. So it's just a matter of, hey, like right now you're invited to certain social events and obviously community service events are available to the community like feel free to show up but in general we try and tell people like come back next semester when we can really have your time can you talk a little bit more about the uh, service aspect of the frat yeah so we do a lot on campus with like a broader definition of campus being like the Duke Campus Farm, Duke Gardens, Duke Lemur Center. But 
most of our interactions are with the Durham community. We do book drives. We work with the North Carolina Food Pantry. We've done a lot of food drives, a lot of working with like other organizations that already exist. So earlier this semester, we went to the um, Trosa thrift store and volunteered with them. I would guess that in a semester, we work with about 18 organizations, um, some of which are a weekly event and some of which are a semesterly event. And uh, I know uh, we didn't mention this earlier, but I'm as a junior and mechanical engineer. Is this fraternity geared more towards engineers at all? There's not any sort of bias towards any major. I think most of our engineers are actually BME. And I think that kind of ties into the like wanting to like work with people, wanting to like make things better in like the medical field. So there's one other mechanical engineer in the group at this time. We have a lot of people from all over the place. I could probably say we have the most psychology and econ right now, but it's a really good mix. And how many uh, members do you have this semester? We're currently at 35, not counting the new recruitment group, which is about 18. Oh, wow. That's pretty large. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, since you're a frat that's not officially Greek-affiliated, um, you don't have uh, like in-house living or anything, what is your organization's relationship with Duke? Um, with funding? I know you said you had a national chapter. Um, Did any of the uh, disaffiliation affect you guys? Are you considering getting like student living group status? So student living group status is being eliminated, but LLC status still exists. We considered becoming an LLC for next year, but the deadline was set really early kind of before we knew who our committed like sophomores and juniors were, which is essential to setting up an uh, LLC. So in terms of like funding and storage and whatnot, we mostly are just another student group in the way you might think of, you know, a dance troupe or a hobby related group. We can get money from SOFC and our storage is with UCAE. But in general, like our our dues are extremely low. Um, They pretty much only cover the money that we pay to the national chapter because SOFC does cover most of it. But they do vary a little bit year to year depending on how much we're able to actually get out of SOFC. All right. Is there anything you're thinking about changing or improving within your organization in the future? I think APO is a really great organization and it's incredible at motivating me to get out into Durham and, you know, do my best to give back to it and not just, you know, witness the gentrification, shop at the same four places all the Duke kids go and then head back to campus. I get to see some of the more nitty gritty of Durham and North Carolina in general and also just like meet really cool people and make a difference in the area 
which is something I just, I grew up on and it's really important to me. And when I got to college, I wasn't doing any service, even though I intended to, but this group really like brought that, brought that aspect back into my life. And I feel like the most interesting way possible since it is so social and also so active in like pushing people towards those service projects and whatnot. Yeah, and I know it's also, even though it's called a frat, it's mixed gender, right? And I think mixed gender organizations are awesome. And it's great that you're able to find a community, even though you have Taekwondo, <laughs> which we're great, but we also train with each other and are competitive and can sometimes uh, get at each other's necks. But um glad you were able to find another community that you were able to enjoy. All right. Hello, my name is Richard. I'm a co-host of This Engineering Life, and today I'm with Nils. Hey, I'm Nils. Um, I am a current junior studying Mackie and CS, um, and I'm interested in robotics, uh, like specifically robotic software. Um, I'm also current president of The Cube, uh, which is an entrepreneurship LLC. Um, we were in SLG until now, and uh, for the next year, we'll be transitioning to an LLC. That's super awesome. Um, so what exactly does Cube do? And can you just tell me a little bit more about what Cube is like? Yeah. Um, so Cube is basically a community of currently we're about 60 uh, students who are all interested in entrepreneurship. Um, anything from founding a company to just like working at a startup or working in venture capital or really anything in between. Um, so it's a community of students who are all like kind of sharing a common interest. Um, but we're also like a social group, um, almost like a big friend group um, that just like hang out and do fun things things to get to know each other as well as uh, like I said kind of supporting each other's career interests and I know you mentioned that um, Cube is recently changing from an SLG to an LLC so is that um, how is the process like for that and are there going to be any differences now that um, Cube is LLC yeah so um, the process for that wasn't too bad um, because admin knew that uh, we were gonna have to be transitioning um, into something other than an SLG since um, SLGs are ending this year, uh, they kind of provided us a pathway to uh, become a new LLC really easily. They just like lay out the steps. Um, we basically filled out an application talking about what we want our recruitment process to look like, what like how our organization is set up. Um, it, was, it was pretty easy considering we already have an organization, whereas if you need to start a new LLC, then you have to like come up with all that stuff from scratch. So we kind of just talked about how Cube is run, um, how it works, and then we also had to design like a house course. Uh, LLCs all have to teach a house course, so um, we designed like a house course syllabus about entrepreneurship, um, basically just like yeah, covering um, all the stuff that we pretty much try to teach new members, but in a little bit more of a formal way. And what does that house course entail? Yeah, so it's it's basically just um, giving an overview on uh, like innovation entrepreneurship from uh, like an investor standpoint, from like a founder standpoint, from an engineer standpoint, product manager, like kind of talking about all of those viewpoints, um, like recruiting for startups, talking about like how you can get into working at those kinds of roles, how to evaluate companies, um, a, a lot of different things that kind of, like I said, we, we kind of try to teach um, CUBE members anyway, but in just like a little bit more of a formal way. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And I also heard you guys are transitioning to a new section, right? Yeah, so um, historically we've been in Craven. Uh, we kind of moved around a little bit. Last year all the SLGs were in Edens. Um, this year we're in Craven again. 
Um, and then next year we'll be moving to few, uh, few GG specifically. Um, Cube is one of the largest LLCs from what I know. So um, that section allows us uh, like kind of room to expand. Um, and also admin has mentioned that they would like to build us a makerspace potentially in few, um, which would be uh, really cool for us. Obviously, people can like work on entrepreneurial projects together. Um, and yeah, so they said that few is the best space for that. No, yeah, that sounds awesome, especially as an engineer myself. You know, having a makerspace in section that sounds amazing. Um, speaking of which, as an engineer, how has Cube kind of helped you in that field? And I know you've talked a lot about like entrepreneurship and on the business side of things, but more specifically on the engineering side, how's that helped you out? Yeah, so I mean, I think. Entrepreneurship and engineering, uh, like, definitely go hand in hand a lot. Like, obviously, they're they're um, not really two separate things. Uh, so I obviously was an engineer first. I came in uh, and started just like working on personal projects and stuff in college. Um, and then once I started getting interested in entrepreneurship, it kind of just provided me like an outlet, like a way to leverage the interest in projects. Because um, that's like what founding a company is: is you there's some kind of project you're interested in, and you um, are able to like make something really cool out of it, and other people are interested in it as well. So. Um, I think Cube is great because it's given me a, like a community of other people who are all also working on projects, um, some of whom are also engineers, which is cool because um, it's brought me closer to some other engineers who are also interested in entrepreneurship and are also interested in working on uh, cool projects. Um, but it's also helped me uh, like meet some people who are kind of non-technical, who like complement my skill set um, like from other areas of, of Duke that not just Pratt. Um, which I think is super useful for an engineer to kind of have those connections and have experience working with people from uh, a lot of different like majors and a lot of different like points of view. Yeah. And uh, if people are interested in uh, learning more about Cube, how should they get to know that? Yeah, so you can uh, look at our website, dukethecube.com, which has just some information about like companies we've been involved with, our current members, things like that, as well as contact information. You can also just check out our Instagram, thecube underscore duke. Um, we will also be uh, recruiting again next spring. Um, for anyone who would be interested in that, that'll be primarily underclassmen, but uh, we welcome anyone who would be interested in joining. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, having the chance to speak with this engineering life, and it was super awesome talking to you. Yeah, thank you. This Engineering Life is brought to you and supported by the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. A special thanks to all of our interviewees for sharing their experiences. Our senior producer is Dr. Rebecca Simmons. Our editors are Priya Juarez, Raina Verbensky, and Richard Kim. Our theme music is from Silverman Sound, Audio Audics, and Kevin McLeod. Be sure to check back in two weeks for a super exciting episode, The Rise of Robots. You can find this episode and more resources online at thisengineeringlife.com. I'm Priya. I'm Raina. I'm Richard. And I'm Sydney. And this has been This Engineering Life. See you again soon.